Well, let me pray uh, that the word, word that we've just given thanks for might be profitable for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that it was recorded, that it's been preserved, that it's been handed down to us, and that today we can spend some time considering it. Father, by your Holy Spirit, convict and change us. Make us more like Jesus, we ask, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, today we're going to continue in, uh, in looking at Mark, and we're up to chapter 2 uh, uh, this morning. And what I wanted to do was to, uh, to start by thinking a little bit about how we see the world around us. How we see the world around us. Now, first of all, you're looking up there going, I can't see that at all. So uh, that's perfectly fine. Uh, this is a little survey that came across my attention uh, over the course of this week. And it's from 20 or so countries around the world asking them how optimistic they are. Now, you probably can't read it. Do you know what the most optimistic of these 20 countries was about the future? So the number of people who said, the world is getting better. Can you think what country that was? The answer is, by a long way, the answer is China. Uh, 41% of the people who were surveyed in China said the world is getting better. Can you believe that? Uh, of course, if we go down a little bit, you can start to see, maybe you can vaguely see the, uh, see the flags. Um, let me just zoom into the really important part. Uh, can you see the one that's at the bottom? Well, equal tide with France at the bottom. Can you see that? It's Australia. Apparently, 3% of Australians said, we think the world is getting better. Now, the interesting part about that is that we all live on the same planet, don't we? And so we believe in Australia that we see the world basically right. We've got it right. Our view of the world is right because, heck, it's my view of the world. What this survey says basically is everyone else is wrong. Is that right? Everyone else who sees the world as more optimistic than us is wrong because we're Australians. We're obviously right about this. Think of how wrong the Chinese are. It's intriguing, isn't it? 41% of them and only 3% of us see the world as getting better. I want to think this morning about the fact that our perception of the world can be wrong. Whether China's right or Australia is right is not really the point of this sermon. Today I want us to acknowledge the fact that we can be wrong on how we see the world. We can be wrong on how we see the world. Well, let me just explore that for a second. Here, here are some of my friends. Uh, back in Wollongong, I used to be part of a running group before my knees decided that they would die. Um, a, a running group. And uh, this, is, this is my friends all gathered around there. Well, I think as Australians, oh, the W, what's the W for? Not winners, uh, Williams joggers. It was a guy called uh, Mark Williams, and it was his name. We're all going like that. It's quite juvenile, really, Luke, but thank you for asking. Um, I think one of the things that we can get wrong as Australians is I think our default is, our default is, my friends are basically right. They're basically okay. When it comes to spiritual matters, my friends are basically fine. They're basically fine. And, uh, oh no, they have needs, and I'll share some of those needs in uh, maybe in my life group to pray for my friends. They have needs, and I'm praying for them. And the needs are invariably about relational struggles and about sickness and about difficulties at work. 
And it's not wrong to pray for those things, but I think sneaking behind it is the assumption that we think our friends are basically fine spiritually. There's another one, whether it's our view or the view of people around us, there's a view that says, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is basically a good teacher. He's basically a good teacher. And he has some tips for us on a better life. Jesus is uh, a, a, a guy out there somewhere. Apparently, some people wrote down some stuff that he said. And it's helpful, I guess, if you don't get into it too heavily. Uh, he's just got some tips for a better life. So Jesus is basically a good teacher. Thirdly, I think kind of sneaking around in people's heads is this one. Some people are basically bad and beyond hope. Some people are basically bad and those people are beyond hope. And I don't pray for them. I don't hang out with them. And I don't actually spend too much time thinking about anything except that they're basically the bad people of the world. And whether you put uh, this face up there or whatever it is, we've, I think all of us got a little category where we think these people are a little bit beyond hope. They're kind of written off in God's world. Well, today, let's see how God might challenge our vision of the world. Whether you own that one and you say, actually, I think some of these things myself, or whether you think, I certainly know people who think this way, I want us to see how God's word might challenge our vision of the world, and we might get it to line up more with what God himself thinks. In order to do that, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2. We laid out the plan for what this book looks like uh, last week. We saw that it's about the good news, the gospel is the good news, that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the whole account of Jesus' life is pushing towards the cross. Where are we? We're in this first section here about the identity of Jesus. We're hearing about the good news. Where are we geographically in our little account of Jesus' life here? Uh, We're in a place called Galilee. The first eight chapters kind of happen up the north of Israel here. And if we zoom in a little bit further, uh, we're near a place called Capernaum, which is at the top of Lake Galilee. Why do I show you that? You're all like, I don't need to know that. I want you to know it happened in real space and time and real geography. And Mark says this is where this part of God's word happened. So, uh, what is Jesus doing? In, uh, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 38 to 39, we see what Jesus is doing. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Jesus said, I've come to announce the good news. That's my message. That's my mission. You'll notice that his preaching was accompanied by demonstration. It wasn't at odds with his preaching, but he came preaching and demonstrating the coming of the kingdom, announcing that the gospel was good news. Well, the other day I went to a uh, a cricket match, uh, which was very fun. Incidentally, the last couple of cricket matches haven't been very fun if you're a cricket person, but nevertheless... Uh, and what I, was, uh, what I was noticing, we got to the gate and uh, apart from all the hassle parking your car and then trying to get into the, we were trying to get into the stadium. And as we were there, it was just a massive pack of people there. And I just sort of stuck my camera upon my head and went, click. I thought, this is going to be fun for reference at a later date. 
hey, look, it turns up as a sermon illustration, so helpful to take the photo. The, uh, the point here is uh, there's a bunch of people here who are trying to get somewhere. They're trying to get to see a game of cricket, and they're all kind of forcing their way forward because the good stuff is inside. The good stuff is inside. And it kind of means people can put up with a little bit of pushing and shoving because we're all trying to get to the good stuff that's inside. It's that sort of setting that we have here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Have a look with me. If you can open your Bibles, um, page, I think it's 1002 or 1524, 25, something like that. Uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 just now. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Big pushing crowd. And what did Jesus do? He preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Do you think they brought the paralyzed man to hear Jesus' preaching? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Perhaps they did. Perhaps they did bring the paralyzed man who couldn't have walked on his own to hear the preaching. But we'll notice what they did next is quite extraordinary. Verse 4, since they could not get, to, uh, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now we could divert the sermon here about the dirt falling on Jesus' head and the upset of the owner of the house and all that sort of stuff. But that's not really what I, camp, what I want to camp out on today. The point is the friends were so committed to their paralyzed friend that they would do anything in spite of the crowd to get him to Jesus. There was something in Jesus, in the reputation that he had built as he preached, that meant they were expecting healing as well. They were expecting healing. And I want you to think how eager you would be today, how eager you would be today, if you knew that up at, uh, up at the podium was a man who was announcing the coming of the kingdom of God and was healing people of all diseases, how eager would you be to get there? How eager would you be to take someone you love there? I would think almost every one of us can think of someone that they would bring right now, can't we? And if you knew that genuine healing was there, like life-transforming freedom from sickness in an age without hospitals, how eager do you think you'd be? How passionate would you be to hear that man? Well, the Bible talks about real humans, just like you and me. Humans who were eager enough to dig a hole through a roof to get their friend who had no hope in the world. In fact, no hope in our modern day, would he? A paralyzed man to Jesus. And so they brought him. And so here we have the scene, dirt, crowd, packed. I'm assuming as they start to lower him through, everyone must make room. Remember, there was no room in the house. Do do you hear that? And so as the dirt falls through and they lower a bloke down, what's the only thing you can do? I assume everyone's backing into each other while man is lowered through roof. So here he comes down and Jesus looks at him. What's the expectation? 
What's the expectation? Well, let's let our expectation meet the Jesus reality. When Jesus saw their faith, intriguing, the faith of the men who had brought him, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. Did he say that? Have a look with me at what Jesus said. It's up on the screen here. Jesus looked at the man, looked at the faith of the men who had lowered him down in this incredible setting, and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Thunderbolt. What? First of all, did you kind of know why we got him here, Jesus? Because we've kind of damaged the house a little. What? What? You've missed it. You've missed the point. We brought him here for something else entirely. What, what are you saying, Jesus? Son, your sins are forgiven. Everyone is silent. Now, intriguingly, we now meet a group of people that are going to be a recurring theme throughout Mark's account of Jesus' life. A group of people who don't stand there going, Jesus, you're excellent. We think you're fantastic. We meet the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the people who are the leaders of Israel's spiritual life, the teachers, the preachers, the people who are responsible for shepherding God's people along, the very people you would think would start to applaud the coming of the Son of God. Here we meet them. Jesus has just declared extraordinarily, Son, your sins are forgiven. And what happens? Have a look at verses 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their first reaction is not to praise God. It's to accuse Jesus of blaspheming God's name. Their first response is to deny and condemn Interestingly enough, if you think about it, say someone here stood up, uh, Lisa stood up and turned around and said to Courtney, Courtney, your sins are forgiven. She could say that if she wanted. And we'd go, that's a little bit odd. But it wouldn't really mean anything. And on top of that, if, sorry, Lisa, you, you, I should seat next to Lisa. The person in the seat next to Lisa turned up and said that. Um, what we'd have to say is that is an audacious thing to say. And in fact, claiming to forgive sins, not just I forgive what you've done wrong to me, but I forgive your sins, that is something that the Old Testament says is God's domain. Have a listen to what it says in Exodus 34. Uh, Moses is on the mountain and God says, I will reveal myself to you, Moses. And here's what he said. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, in, in essence, saying, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the sins of the children, uh, the, the, punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What we see here in the Old Testament is God says, it's my job to forgive. And so here's Jesus, and he's saying, I forgive your sins. And immediately the scribes who know their Bible go, um, eh, wrong. 
you're not God. In fact, if you're claiming that, you're blaspheming, you're misusing God's name. You're claiming for yourself something extraordinary. But here's what I notice. They weren't yet serious enough. Think with me. They've said, this man is blaspheming. Well, what does the Old Testament say about blasphemy? Does anyone know? You're right. You're in big trouble if you blaspheme. This is what it says in Leviticus 24. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. So let's think about this for a second. Man comes down, Jesus makes his announcement, scribes and teachers of the law are sitting there thinking, this guy's been blaspheming. If they were serious, what should they do right now? Stone Jesus. Intriguingly, they don't, but I want you to note This starts a chain reaction of events that will eventually lead them to carry out their plan to kill Jesus. Here's the seed of it right here. You notice that Jesus knew this. Remember, have a look with me. Uh, Verse 6 says, they were thinking to themselves. Verse 8 says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, just stop for a second. You know we confess our sins in the service? And you might think to yourself, hey, I haven't done anything that anyone's been able to observe that I've done wrong this week. I've had a pretty good week. I've managed to hold my tongue with my kids. I haven't misused my tongue with my spouse. Even my work colleagues have been wonderfully blessed by the things that I've said. I didn't let any of it out. Where did it all happen? Here's what I want you to know. You can't fool God. The living God knows. Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. How challenging is that? When we come to the time of confession, you better know, you better confess. I need to confess. Because even if you've kept a perfect record on the outside, none of us have kept a perfect record on the inside, have we? Have we? Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts and said to them, why are you thinking these things? And he poses them a challenge, a two-question challenge. He says to them, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, and I've got up here a duster and a chalkboard. Remember we used to have chalk and dusters? Um, That was before they had whiteboards that could print out what was written on it, you see. So I've gone with that. Instead of the whiteboard, which you may actually be able to capture and print out, I've gone with the chalkboard, which once it's wiped off, gonskis. So which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, wiped out, or is it easier to say to a paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home? Quick straw poll. Which is easier to say, do you think? Uh, Question A, your sins are forgiven. Question B, get up and take your mat and go home. So question A, who thinks question A is the easier one to say? Who says it's easier to say, get up, take your mat and go home? Okay, thank you. And a bunch of you sat on your hands and went, I'm not going to get tricked. No one's going to know that I got this wrong because I'm not sure. Is that right? Well, here's the thing. Uh, let's, let's get into the, into the world here of, of the Bible. Uh, there's a man, and I've got an uh, Indian guy here who's, um, who's crippled. Uh, there's a man on the floor in a room. 
And Jesus says, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take your mat, get up and go home? Can you see how if I say the second one, what's going to happen? Either I'm going to be spectacularly right or spectacularly wrong, aren't I? In front of everyone. Because I can say, a piece of paper there, levitate up into the air and hover about there. And if it doesn't happen, I look silly, don't I? But if I say to you, uh, Ian, your car's white, isn't it? It's parked out there? Great. I just changed Ian's car to be green. Where's the applause? Thank you, Luke. Thank you. That's it. So if I say paper levitate, I'm a fool in front of you straight away, aren't I? If I say car green, okay, you actually actually don't know, do you? I could have. And Ian's hoping desperately that I haven't. Here's the thing. To say your sins are forgiven is invisible, isn't it? Where's the record kept? Who keeps the record? God himself, doesn't he? Is there a heavenly filing cabinet? Well, there may be. I don't know. Is it on email? Don't know. But here's the thing. To say that my sins are forgiven, that he will remember my sins and lawless acts no more, to say that that's done is actually invisible, isn't it? To say to a paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and walk, is highly visible. In fact, there's a room so packed that they had to cut a hole in the roof to get him in. There's a huge group of witnesses, aren't there? So here's what Jesus says. Something truly extraordinary. Something extraordinary happens in this room. Jesus says in verses 10 to 11, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who's the Son of Man? It's the way Jesus refers to himself. He says, I want you to know that I have power to do the invisible thing and I will show you by doing the impossible visible thing in front of you. I will prove it. And so... He said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And what happened? Verse 12. Have a look with me. What happened? There was an awkward silence in the room as a weird man who was just a teacher was exposed for being a fraud. Is that what it says? Doesn't, does it? Have a look with me at verse 12. He got up, took his mat and walked out in in full view of them all. What happened was extraordinary. Jesus says, this impossible visible thing will prove to you that I have power to do the impossible invisible thing. I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Of course, the the Gospels are full of people missing the point. Have a look at the second half of verse 12. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Just, I, I just want to think with you for a second, right? What should they have done at that point? Jesus just didn't do a miracle. All they, they just totally lost the plot. They went, miracle! That's extraordinary! Did you know why he did the miracle? What was he trying to teach them? I have power to forgive sins on the earth. What should their response have been? Form an orderly line, fall on your knees and beg the same, wouldn't you? The man who can sort out my eternal destiny, wipe away the the sin and the scars of my heart is standing before me. Not a magic trick, real forgiveness. But they praise God 
and looked at a man walking out holding a mat. What Jesus was saying is that he is the son of God. I want to look at this next story, that the next thing that immediately follows on. I've got a picture on the screen there of a lady who was um, quickly grabbed uh, when the French were freed from the Nazis. She was someone who had collaborated with the Nazis, basically being someone who'd hung out with the Nazis. The French, understandably, no one likes a traitor, cut the hair off all of these women, branded them with swastikas, humiliated them publicly. Traitors, people who deal with a foreign occupying army, are universally hated. They're universally hated. You will hate a traitor in your family. You'll hate people in your workplace who are traitors, who betray I want to take you to Capernaum. This is the spot. I want to take you to Capernaum and the the area around the lake. Have a look with me at verses 13 to 16. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Stop there. Each of us should have, at this point, if we're reading the gospel the way it should be read, a gut-clenched reaction. This guy was a tax collector. Now, we just sit here going, all right, so he's a parking inspector. We don't like parking inspectors, but we can live with them. Here's the thing. Levi, son of Alphaeus, was collecting taxes for the Romans. He was extorting money from his fellow Jews. He was, in every possible sense, a traitor. He was the person you would never be seen with that you would curse, that you would hate and despise. Jesus, walking around the lake, the Son of God, comes across a traitor to Israel. Someone who has devoted their life to extorting others, who's rich off the suffering of others. Jesus comes to this man as he walks around the lake, and he gives him what for? Have a listen to what he says in verse 14. Jesus sees the man there, and he says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. We should be staggered. We should be staggered. You know, Jesus' decision is to call someone that everyone else would have decided was bad beyond redemption. Somebody whose life was so far gone they couldn't possibly be used of God. And Jesus sees him and says, you come follow me. You come follow me. More than that, Jesus just doesn't say, you can tag along behind me. Please don't stand too near my other disciples who are good fishermen. He actually says, I'm going to come and eat with you. I'm going to have fellowship at your home. We're going to share food together. As they're having food together, everyone in the town is looking in going, we know that's the house. This, what, what on earth is Jesus and his disciples doing in the home of this extortioner, this traitor? Uh, Jesus, have you lost the plot? What's your problem, man? How can the... You're a holy man. You, you can't be in there. How can the Son of God... They don't know that yet. But how can this holy man be eating with the sinners? When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw him eating there, this is verse 16, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, verse 17 tells you why. And it's extraordinary. Why on earth did Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Verse 17, 
On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why is Jesus here? It's got nothing to do with the people who are willing to judge his activity. It's got nothing to do with the people who think they're so holy they can't hang out with the evil ones, the sinners. Jesus has come for an extraordinary reason. He says, I'm the doctor treating the sick. I have come not to call the righteous. If you think you're all right, guess what? I've got nothing for you. But if you know you're lost, if you're sick in your soul, I am the doctor and I hold out hope and life and forgiveness for you. This, this is why, incidentally, no, no one will understand the goodness of Jesus if they don't understand the weightiness of sin. Because if Jesus just loves good people, he's no different from me or you, is he? Is he? We do that. And so if you don't know that there's something fundamentally wrong with people, that we're broken, that we're lost, that we don't have anything to offer God on our own, then the love of Jesus just looks, it's no biggie. But if we know they're sick, if they're lost, then what we find in Jesus is the doctor loving the sick. Well, there's good news, isn't it? Here's a bloke. I want you to know God can and does call the bad. God can and does call the bad. No one is beyond hope. No one is beyond hope, and we are called to hang out with them. We are called to hang out with them, not a holy huddle. We are called to hang out with them. Now, here's a bloke. Have a look up here. This guy's name is actually Dave Jensen. Have you heard the name Jensen before? Do you know who his dad is? Peter Jensen, the Archbishop, former Archbishop of Sydney. Here's a man who was brought up in a godly man's house who went astray womanizing, joining the army, making a life of boozing, whoring and bashing is the way he described his life. Someone who had turned his back. And here's the extraordinary story. Through love and patience and persistence, through the extraordinary care of God, this man, that's the front page of Eternity magazine, it says, rebel turned evangelist. God saved him, God forgave him, God gave him a new lease on life. That man is now a devoted evangelist for the Lord. We will decide quite hard-heartedly that some people are beyond God. He hasn't decided that. God can and does call the bad and no one is beyond hope. We are called to hang out with them. But as I say that to you, Let's get practical. Isn't that dangerous, right? So if I say, let's hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners, what does that mean? Isn't that dangerous for us? Well, there can be. Here's a picture of me with my work friends uh, some years ago now uh, at a wedding. And they're people that I love and I hung out with who had vastly different views to me. And I used to love hanging out with them. You will have friends like this. Uh, What's it called uh, on Sunday afternoon? Happy hour uh, at the Cheslon Village uh, might be a time like this. Um, how do we guard ourselves when we do this, when we hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners? How do, how do we do this? Well, first thing I want to ask you, is hanging out with them indulgence or mission? Indulgence or mission? 
If it's indulgence, just because you want to hang out with your friends and, and let your hair down a little, guess what? You're a sellout. My, my, my friends, before we went to parties in high school, what we used to do, we were crazy, I'm happy to say that, but what we used to do is we used to park our car outside and sit in the, uh, in the gutter and pray before we went into parties with our high school friends that God would give us opportunities to talk to people. Are you there for indulgence or are you there for mission? Ask yourself. And if you're there for indulgence, maybe it's a good time to stop and pray that God would change your heart. Secondly, which way is the morality flowing? So you spend a lot of time hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Which way is the morality flowing? Not, not that they all have to become uh, people who knit and uh, come to church on Sunday. That's not, not, what I'm, not what I'm looking for. Knitting's fine, incidentally. What, what I mean is, are you getting worse because you spend time with them? Do your standards slip when you're with them? Are you a sellout when you're with them? Stop it. We are called to be salt and light. Are we salt and light while we're there, speaking of things that matter, or are we sweet and dark? In other words, just chatting about frivolous things, no honouring to the truth or Jesus while we're with them. Sweet and dark or salt and light? Does your witness ever shine amongst your friends who don't know Jesus? A grab bag of other points. If you've just become a new Christian, maybe it's a good time to spend some time apart because it might be helpful for you. Uh, please pray before you spend time hanging out. You should be doing this anyway, but pray. Do it in fellowship. Sometimes it can be good to take someone else along, keep you accountable, and have some accountability. So if you're going to go and hang out with your friends, just have someone to be able to ask you, maybe in your life group, how'd you go? Did you hold the line? Did you compromise? Did you speak of Jesus? I think it's absolutely essential that we sit down, live alongside, work with, love and care for people who aren't in this building right now. I want us to do it carefully, but if anyone has set that challenge before us, it's Jesus, isn't it? All right, so what's got to change? What's got to change to our worldview? Remember where we started. What's got to change for our worldview? Well, let me say three things. Firstly, I want you to know a huge change is for us to acknowledge that my friends are spiritually sick. My friends are spiritually sick. They aren't well. Their greatest need is forgiveness before all else. Jesus does spiritual first aid on the man lowered through the, through the thing. Do you think Jesus forgot he was paralysed? Do you think Jesus didn't appreciate how much of a burden that would have been on his life? Of course he did. What does Jesus do? He goes with the priority. What is the number one priority? Son, your sins are forgiven. And I will heal you. Not either or, but the priority is important. Your friends are spiritually sick and their greatest need is forgiveness before all else. We have a card that helps us pray for our friends. It's called our 316441 card. I'm going to explain it at another point. But it gives us a chance to pray for a family member, a friend, a next-door neighbour, and someone we're yet to meet. The idea is that we would pray, John 3.16, for four people for one year. There's one of these cards at the back where you drop your Care and Connect cards in. I would love you to take it and have this year be a year where you pray for four people who don't know Jesus yet, 
over the course of this year. Secondly, have we got Jesus right? Jesus cannot simply be a good teacher. He cannot be a good teacher. His declaration of forgiveness is a claim to be God, nothing less. If he's a good teacher, incidentally, at this point, he's a liar, isn't he? Which generally doesn't make for good teacher status. Is that correct? Jesus cannot be simply a good teacher. And if you don't know that yet or you'd like to explore it some more, that Jesus is the Son of God, on the 9th of February, right here, on Tuesday the 9th, we're going to start another of our Jesus for the Curious course. Bring yourself along and interrogate whether Jesus really can be who he said he is, the Son of God. Thirdly and lastly, we are called to love the lost. When we say our vision is to see new life come to every home in Oran Park, it means the homes that we have decided maybe they're too far gone. It means the homes that we have decided, I couldn't possibly talk to those people. We are called to love the lost. Let's eat wisely on mission for Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son come to earth. We thank you that he confounds our expectations. We thank you for the extraordinary offer of forgiveness of sins and pray that we may know it. We thank you for his model of eating with the least and pray, Father, that we might join him in doing that. Save us from folly, save us from frivolity. Father, make us fruitful in mission, we pray. And lastly, Lord, we ask that you would refresh our eyes, that we would believe that you can save anyone and call them to yourself. Do that, Father, so that new life may come to every home. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.